Welcome to Character Assassination, a podcast about art, tea, and a jolly spot of murder. Each episode, a new creator of characters is inducted into the Society for Ungentlemanly Conduct, during which they'll subject a new character to abject misery while chatting about all manner of nonsense. It's civilized and this homicide. What more could you ask for? I'm your chap at large, Nereus, and on this episode, I'm joined by illustrator and comics creator Dan Berry. So put the kettle on, take a seat, and ignore the thing scratching at your window. It's probably nothing. Maybe. Anyway, this is Character Assassination. Castle Squid Ink has some pretty odd smells at the best of times. We grow sentient cheese that refuses to shower. But over the last few days, every time I flush the loo, there's a distinct stench of Cthulhu and chocolate orange. Is that something you can call a plumber for? Anyway, we have some company again, which usually are discouraged. But we appear to have been visited by the dastardly Mr. Dan Berry. How are you, sir? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm fine. The rash has come back, but, you know, green's the normal colour for a rash. I, I, I noticed you called me dastardly, and I appreciate that. Thank you for noticing. I was going with blackguard originally, but I think dastardly is softer. <laughs> That'll work. So, we're about to induct you into the Society for Ungentlemanly Conduct, because, let's face it, there's nothing more ungentlemanly than forcing a poor defenceless character to live in this cruel world. But before we start... Perhaps you could tell us exactly what the devil it is you do. Uh, predominantly, I try and make uh, stories appear inside someone else's head. I try and think of it as a kind of uh, mind control. So I can do a you know a few little marks on a piece of paper over here, and then I can make someone looking at a screen the other side of the world go, "Oh, that was, that was that that? make a noise, or you know do a thing, or have tears come out of their eyes, or or, or some sort of thing." Uh, so that's the the sort of primary ambition for me is to do this mind control thing where I will make a drawing that then affects someone in some way or a string of drawings that you know uh, has multiple effects along the way as well if you were going to create the character of Dan Berry when you're drawing what kind of character is Dan? oh he's a because um, uh, I, I do uh, rather a lot of um, you know sort of autobiographical comics about myself um, and it's uh, it's a fabrication <laughs> essentially. It's I mean when you said I was dastardly, I think that that's fairly accurate because it's uh, it's an exaggeration. It's um, uh, you know you're sort of in a monologue as you sort of walking around a town or thinking about making a cup of tea or, or whatever it is cooking. Uh, it's that inner monologue that you think I'm never letting that out of my mouth. That's the most ridiculous thing, and I think it's that particular aspect of uh, you know Dan Berry that ends up uh, on the page. So basically you're trying to fool us into believing you're a much nicer version of you. Oh, much nicer, yeah. The uh, the drawings of me are much nicer than the actual person, I'm sure. So are we saying the character of Dan is just a mask? Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. Now, let's talk about the nasty business of dragging a character kicking and screaming into the world. How do you usually approach it? Uh, usually I, I have a, a little think beforehand. Um, so depending on what kind of character I'm going to be designing, uh, is it a human character that's based on someone that I can uh, I know? What I what I like to be able to do is to have something to test it against. Uh, so one of the characters I'm drawing for a book at the moment, uh, he's got quite long hair, 
and he, he always sort of tucks it behind his ears. Uh, and so I'm always uh, thinking about this guy I used to know who had quite big, bushy, long hair, and he'd always be sort of tucking his hair behind his ears, and as a result, it, his ears always looked like they stuck out like a, a huge distance. Um, and I've, I've always thought about that, and it, it was one of those sort of quirks of character that I felt was uh, believable, and it also gave me sort of little handles on the side of the head to show the orientation of it as well. Because I have a relatively sort of loose cartoony style, uh, I, I don't draw realistically, but I need to still obey the laws of sort of physics, I guess. And so, it, you know, if a, a character's looking up, I need to be able to position the ears so that you know, obviously the eyes, uh, you know, the features are further up on the, the globe of the head and the ears are further down and you can see the orientation of the chin and things like that. So little quirks that give you a, a sense of believability for the character. Um, what I'll often do is have a really good think first before I start drawing anything, um, uh, which is incredibly boring to watch. But uh, uh, what I'll do is I'll, I'll sort of fix in my mind's eye the idea of the character uh, and then uh, sort of describe it to myself. And if there's, you know, these common bits of reality I can grasp onto, you know, like the ears, like a pinstripe suit, like a, um, uh, you know, a pair of boots that I saw that I thought, oh, they're really nice boots. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll take those and feed it into it. And then um, and what comes out is something that is inferior to the picture inside my head. Uh, but no one else on the planet knows what that picture looks like, so I just pretend that's exactly what I wanted to do the whole time. And yet every other artist on the planet can relate to that. This isn't <laughs> what it looks like in my head, but this is what's come out. And then, you know, the trick, you know, obviously we're behind the curtain at this point, um, is to tell all the, um, you know, the civilians out there, no, I just do it. Yeah, it's easy. You know, it's easy. You just draw it. This stuff just happens. <laughs> yeah, I just, you know, I, I fart these out. 12 at a time, it's brilliant. You have a particularly fluid, almost gestural style to your illustration work. Do you find that causes problems when duplicating the same character? Uh, sometimes, yeah. But you know what I was talking earlier about the um, those sort of like handles? You know, each character that I draw will have like a, a specific uh, set of handles, you know. So in the, the last book I did, Three Rooms from Valerie's Head, you know, Valerie had a very particular hairstyle and she had a very particular way of holding her shoulders. Um, and, you know, the multitude of other characters in there each had their own individual quirks and, you know, lack of a jaw or, you know, glasses or you know, something that made it easy to orient them, I think. As long as you've got that believability of the character sort of nailed in each drawing, the, they sort of flow together quite seamlessly. But I think that if you were to sort of onion skin them into an animation, you'd have a real tough time animating them. So let's talk about this character that you're going to design while we... You know, we can give you time to, to, to think about it a bit. That could make for quite a quiet podcast. Um, yeah. Who are you going to be forcing into a life of horrors? Well, I, I wanted to, to give you a few options, to be honest. I've got, got a few um, characters that I've been uh, fooling around with for a, for a few months. Uh, so I have, uh, I mean, there's some animal characters and there's a couple of human characters. Uh, so do you, do you want to go human or do you want to go animal? Bear in mind, you're going to have to kill this character at the end. Makes zero difference to me. <laughs> Excellent. That, that, that callous attitude towards your character is exactly what we're looking for. <laughs> uh, but um, actually, let, let's, let's see if you can decide which is the strangest of those characters. Uh, prob- okay, the strangest is nearly definitely um, a, an eel that I've been drawing. Um, I, I, I remember taking my kids to uh, you know some sort of aquarium, sea life centre, and seeing this mo- moray eel sort of uh, sort of groaning out of a uh, a pipe in a in a tank somewhere. I remember thinking, I love the shape of his head and you know that nasty little 
ghastly beady-eyed little look that he's got and so i've been sort of just fooling around with him in my sketchbook um and i when you say the, the sort of the, the weirdest one um i've been drawing him as a gangster um with arms and legs so as such eels are notoriously limbless um don't know if you know right, notoriously they, um, yes notoriously limbless and so a character with arms and legs that doesn't normally have arms and legs he barely functions as an eel anymore but i rather like drawing him marvelous in which case, I shall be creating alongside you a nemesis for your eel. His name will be Algernon. So I want to call my uh, my eel here. Um, I, I live in uh, Shropshire in, in the UK, and it has some really wonderfully um, exotic uh, village names. Uh, so this guy, I think, is going to be a small village um, on, on the way to work called Preston Gubbles. <laughs> because if there's one thing weird British villages are good for, it's ridiculous names. Isn't it wonderful? It's fantastic, Preston Gubbles. I, I sort of want to live in Preston Gubbles now. <laughs> I haven't been to Preston Gubbles, I can heartily recommend it, gotta say. Now then, Algernon is going to be a cockney maker of pies, because what better to stuff into a crust than an eel of gigantic proportions? Uh, yep, yeah, delicious, nutritious, um, party in your mouth. Wonderful. Yes, as any Londoner will tell you, there's <laughs> nothing. Oh god, they won't shut up about it. Every time I go to London, it's all about eels. <laughs> I, ho- I hope they're listening. London. L- London are listening. Let's talk about in the fictional world in which uh, Preston Gubbles exists. Tell me a a little bit about Preston's birth. How did he come into this world? Uh, Egg. Egg. (laughs) I think think it got washed ashore. um, And I think it's it's probably a similar sort of timeline uh, location to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, ah. Probably some sort of, uh, you know, toxic rat that bit the egg or something like that. This this rat with martial arts training spread um, his training by some kind of bite osmosis. Do we feel? Is that a? I guess. Yeah. I mean, it seem, seems legit. I, I, f- I feel like I'm forcing you into into a, into a <laughs> canon. <laughs> Let's say yes. Let's say yes. Let's exactly. Say yes. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. We might get sued, but we'll risk it. I'm sure they'll have to find us first. <laughs> what are you saying? Um, we're not popular enough for, the, for, for. Oh right, no, I said I was just meaning that we're we're incredibly good at um, uh, hiding. Hiding, yes, hiding. yes, we are incredibly good at hiding. Now, one of the things we like to start with, um, I say we in the royal sense of the word, obviously, um, is deciding whether Preston Gubbles is. I, no, I can't say the name without laughing. Preston, <laughs> Preston Gubbles is going to have a life which is... Mr. Gubbles. Mr. Gubbles. The, the incorrigible Mr. Gubbles is going to have a life beginning easily or would he be born under a bad sign? Do you have I, a preference? I think that he's, uh, he's one of these characters that is sort of... Um, uh, danced his way through life uh, without a care in the world, and as such, has uh, little regard for the feelings and well-being of others. Then he deserves everything he gets. I think he does. Yeah, I mean, he's got bags under his eyes, which is the surefire sign of a, a villain. A cad, no less. Exactly. Fantastic. But we're going to throw a spanner into the works, 
and at the Society for Ungentlemanly Conduct, our spanner's name is Suitcase, because he lives in a suitcase. Nobody knows what it is, and frankly, it's probably best that we don't ask, given that it has been known to devour puppies on an industrial scale. But it has one useful trait. It generates random numbers for us, which we'll use to establish precisely how much misery Preston Gubbles will be subjected to. Suitcase, if you wouldn't mind. (laughs) Suitcase has given us a six out of a possible ten, which means that uh, Preston Gubbles will be living a relatively unlucky life. Okay, I mean, he's he's had it quite good so far. I mean, he's had a good innings. Uh, So I feel like, okay. You know, I I think you can take the rough with the smooth, can't you? I I, I like that you're accepting that he perhaps, you know, (laughs) it's time for him to to experience some misery. Yes, okay. How how do you want to hurt this this lovely eel? Uh, We're going to obviously use Algernon. And (laughs) Algernon... Algernon, as a pie maker, has certain tools. So, unfortunately, Algernon has sauntered into Preston Gubbles' life, and he's caught Preston unawares, as the eel has had a pretty easy life, so he's not going to be expecting anything bad to occur. He manages to wrap approximately 60% of Preston Gubbles in a delicious pie crust. He hasn't completely covered him. He didn't roll a 10. Okay. I'm it's very pleased a, about that. A little bit of pastry, just enough to make him slightly disabled. Okay, uh, right, so shall I, shall I draw him with some serious pie, pie damage? Absolutely, pastrify that. Much pastrify <laughs> Okay, let's... Right, uh, okay, uh, okay, so 60%. I feel, okay, that he's going to be, um, as a result, kind of unhappy about this. You would imagine. Um, I think he's, he's, his eyes are looking skyward to the Lord above, thinking, Jesus, why? Why, why have you done this to me? <laughs> All right, okay, I'm kind of enjoying what I'm doing here now. Pie, have you done this to me? <laughs> Pie, have you done this to me? Yeah, there we go. I'm going to do like a, um, like, a, like a big pie that you might capture four and 20 blackbirds within. There we go. That's, yeah, a, that's, a, that's a good 60%. I did, I did try and think about the perspective while I was drawing this. Like, is this going to please Algernon? Is he going to feel that there's a good 60% of that, that character inside that pie? Excellent. Well, we've discussed Ely Preston Gubbles' start in life. Let's talk a bit about yours. How did you start in this dastardly business? Uh, I... I remember drawing like a lot when I was a kid. Um, I remember we used to get the Beano and the Dandy delivered. Not delivered. Uh, my parents delivered it un- into our hands. Um, uh, and I remember, you know, uh, because uh, my name's Dan, uh, I had the Dandy and my brother Tim had the Beano, of course. And my um, my mum had worked in uh, Belgium as a, as a youngster uh, and, and brought back a bunch of like French uh, kids' books and uh, French comics and things like that. And so we, we, we got... Uh, inducted into the ways of Asterix and uh, Tintin and uh, folk like that and uh, I remember you know trying to copy out all of the uh, the sort of Asterix you know I remember thinking Asterix had really weird feet because they didn't have like normal foot shapes within in the thing and um, uh, so I I was always drawing when I was a kid Um, and you know when I was at school I was the one who could draw and so I'd you know sit in a maths class and instead of doing a uh, 
you know, the test as I was supposed to. I would draw the teacher or I'd draw the other people in the class and sort of, you know, try and make the girls laugh, basically. Um, you that, that was smoothie. A, <laughs> I know. Oof, nothing's changed, does it? And um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess I'd, I'd always been interested in drawing. Um, when I was a teenager, I was in uh, bands and uh, so I would uh, do the uh, sort of uh, CD tape covers, things like that, CDs and tapes, you know, that traditional media that uh, used to exist. And um, uh, just kind of uh, that was it, really. I um, really enjoyed drawing and uh, uh, really liked comics. I, f- I fell out of it for a while, obviously. I think everyone kind of does when they're a teenager and they're cool and they already know everything. And um, uh, so I, I did end up coming back in um, uh, in the sort of uh, late 90s, early 2000s with... Um, uh, books by people like uh, Dan Clowes and Chris Ware. Uh, I remember like being a little bit uh, sort of astonished by what they were um, doing because I remember all that I could remember about uh, comics was that they had people being punched through walls and then all of a sudden you've got these uh, these comics that don't do that and they were, they were different and exciting and because I'm talking I keep on drawing on the wrong layer on, on Procreate here. There we go. Just going to get a delicious golden crust on this uh, on this pastry here. Um, yeah. So uh, then I, uh, I I wanted to be a filmmaker um, as a teenager. So I want, wanted to you know go to college and study film and you know make zombie movies and things like that. Uh, and then remember getting frustrated that you needed other people to do that. And uh, oh, I could probably draw it and then you know use that to tell people what I want to do. And then. Uh, that sort of turned into comics uh, and I didn't really know what I was doing if I'm completely honest with you um, so I would make these little mini comics and I would put them inside the books I liked in Waterstones the bookshop in town because I thought if I do that then the publisher will come in and see what I've done and they'll be like hey kid you're pretty good <laughs> uh, didn't didn't work that way um, I remember like you know friends of mine going did you put any comics in, like inside books in a bookshop and I was like yeah I did yeah why well, why not? Why shouldn't I? I think that's quite cool. And they're like, yeah, but you told me to go and buy that book, and then like you've already given me this book. And I was like, oh crap, I did, yeah. So uh, it wasn't exactly, you know, wouldn't say I was a bright youngster. I'm just impressed that you have your own version of the child hanging around Hollywood in the hopes that a producer will spot them and say, "Kid, I'm going to make you a star." Yeah, that's it. <laughs> it's exactly what I did. It was pretty stupid, to be honest with you. Uh, but but charming nonetheless. Uh, so then it was uh, a case of you know meeting um, you know some friends who did comics who then got me into you know doing other things with comics and then going off to comic shows and then realizing oh I see this is how you do it and then you know eventually finding a, you know publisher or you know doing podcasts uh, teaching comics as well. I've spent the last eleven years teaching comics at a university level, um, which has been a delight. I know personally, and I'm sure most visual artists are the same, I started drawing by doing nothing but ripping off better artists. And that was how I learned. So, to put this perhaps indelicately... (laughs) Who am I ripping off? Rip off? No, who did you initially rip off when you said, I don't want to know who you're ripping off now, Dan. (laughs) Nobody (laughs) needs to know that. Well, I think initially, like when I, I started to try and take comics seriously, because I, I was the person that could draw, you know, in in school. So I was, you know, I can I can draw, you know, relatively realistically. When the when the spirit so moves me, um, 
And so I remember uh, getting a load of like you know Jack Kirby and you know those sort of like classic comics and like trying to figure out how to ink with a brush um, because I, I don't know about your development. Mine was drawing with a pencil, drawing with a pencil, and then drawing with felt tips or you know a sharpie or something equally you know horrendous like that. Um, Apologies if you're drawing with a sharpie right now. Um, oh, the, um, I'm just gonna throw out the sharpie. Did I just break your heart? Sorry. Um, so you know, I remember thinking, you know, how did these guys do comics? Oh, they worked, you know, with a you know Sable, you know, series Windsor and Newton series seven or whatever it was with. Um, and so I thought, ah, it, that's the magic pen. So then I would, you know, uh, I had books and books of sort of inking practice where I was trying to ink like uh, you know Jack Kirby or you know whoever. Um, and uh, then uh, seeing the control that Chris Ware had over a brush and making it look like a vector line and thinking, oh, wow, that's, that's, that's some control. And so, you know, I spent a lot of time working with, uh, you know, a brush and brush pen to try and get that level of control. And I, I think that it was, it, I'm glad I did it because it was informative because it's uh, very, very difficult to do. And, you know, you can give yourself real sort of elbow pain and RSI and all the rest of it doing that. Um, but it, it really got me into the idea of tools and how we work with tools and what they're for and um, how you can use them uh, for, for different effects. So then I, I became really interested in the idea of pastiche and how other people did what they did. I think that when you, you try out someone else's style or someone else's tools, you kind of put on their personality for a short time and you know, you sort of inhabit their skin, sort of flopping around ineffectively, um, mimicking them. You know, obviously everyone can tell it's it's a, an imitation. A, lo a lot of that was taking place in just in my sketchbooks, which, you know, for me it's just a, it's a, a practice. You just muck around and you sort of tootle around with it. You know, it's not really for any purpose other than, like, running laps, basically. Um, in terms of my, my own work, I remember seeing uh, the work of Gippi, the, the Italian yeah. uh, artist. And because I'd had a head full of, you know, everyone else's styles and, you know, how it worked and tools, I, I, I remember seeing his work at the Angoulême Festival and having this sort of, you know, hallelujah moment where I realized that what he was doing uh, was kind of similar to what I was trying to find out how to do in that it's the using the line to describe the form and the color to describe the volume, which he, d he did with uh, line and wash, you know, at master's level, you know, absolutely incredible stuff. Uh, but that was the sort of light that went on in my head, like, oh, I understand now. What I'm doing is describing the form with the line and the volume with the color. So if I, you know, I've got a, uh, a page of comics here that is, uh, as yet, it looks a bit nude. Um, it's uh, it's it's uncolored. So it's, for me, you know, I, I look at the, the sort of line work and I'm like, gross, no one will ever love it. Um, until I put the color on and I'm like, actually, that's, it's it's actually all right. <laughs> It's, it's, it's interesting you say that because I find the same with um, with detail and cross hatching. When I'm doing out mm. when I'm doing outlines, I think my work looks ugly as hell, and it's only when I add cross hatching or when I add detail lines, the little kind of divots and things, then it starts yeah. to take shape. Well, I had a similar thing because some of the very earliest comics I drew, which you know, it was lots and lots and lots of meticulous cross hatching, and I remember seeing it from across the room, and I thought, oh, it's an ink wash. And then, no, you, you sort of eyes clicked into focus, and I was like, oh, no, it's, it's, it's hatching. And then, you know, I realized that I was spending hours upon hours, you know, doing lots of little lines that, you know, if you, if you do one slightly off, then the whole thing looks wrong. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I could just put an ink wash down and get the same tone. 
and it would take you know twenty seconds instead of two hours. My um, my process has has often been uh, what's the path of least resistance. <laughs> <laughs> yes, true. I don't know if you'll share this opinion. I've sort of come to the conclusion after including a lot of cross-hatching in my own work that cross-hatching sort of feels like it comes from a, a lack of confidence in your ability. Instead of being bold enough to use a solid swathe of black ink, it feels kind of safer to build it up gradually with cross-hatching. I agree, yeah. I think that... Oh, I, I remember thinking that, you know, it, it must be good I've done so much drawing. Mm. And you can you can often see when someone has overhatched something to the point of like, oh, you've gone through the paper on that one. Yeah. You, know. you, you, were, you were talking a little bit about sort of that almost eureka moment when you realised that maybe someone else is doing something similar. What did that mm-hmm. do for you moving forward? Uh, I think it helped me gain confidence because, I, you know, I had this this sort of heritage of um, sort of French-Belgian art, you know, as a, as a youngster with these like weird kids books that my mum you know brought back from the continent and um I, I never felt a sort of kinship with the kind of american comics you know with the, the sort of slick lines and you know it, I, I liked everything a little bit you know messy and a little bit scrappy really love quentin blake's work because he can make you know something look utterly utterly you know easy painless do 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 there we go you know tony ross as well you know we We've got a um, you know a, a grand uh, history of sort of British uh, children's illustrators you know going back you know hundreds of years that is you know it, it's wonderful to you know be able to see that sort of loose um, you know but very formally very loose you know th- th- there's there's formal structure in that looseness you know I, I absolutely love that I think that there's a fine line between you know formal structure and looseness and then just scrappiness and wishy-washy don't know what I'm doing you know I've thrown a bucket of paint at the thing and now I have a drawing like not no not same thing you know um that looseness is confidence yeah I think that's it and you know seeing Zippy's work I think gave me the the confidence to to kind of understand that it didn't have to be perfect you know it didn't have to be realistic it didn't have to be uh, you know, beautifully rendered. It didn't. There, there was loads of things that it didn't have to be, but it had to be believable. So it, it gave me the, you know, the that kick up the bum to say, right, make sure that what you're doing next time is believable. You know, so the environments that you're in. So you know, like this comic I'm drawing at the moment. You know, he's got a cactus on his desk. He's got a little wrestling calendar. He's got his, you know, headphones, and it's all these little details. Even the particular kind of chair that he's sitting on is something that I've, you know, seen and sat on myself. You know, there's a scooter in the background of one of these panels, and it's my son's scooter. And you know, so it, it's all things that exist in real life and are 100% plausible. So I'm not trying to make anything up. I'm just trying to feed more of the reality that I've understood into the reality I'm trying to create. I'm glad you mentioned environment. Because I'd really like to talk about the environment that Preston Gubbles calls his usual haunt. Where does uh, Preston Gubbles hang out, generally? I think uh, in the the bar of a, um, uh, like a not very nice restu- uh, hotel. Like, you, you know, a sort of very cheap um, hotel for people at conferences. Ah, yes. Yeah. As, as a comic artist, I, I feel like I spend an awful lot of time in these hotels. I don't want to say travelodge your jewelries in, but that sounds... <laughs> <laughs> oh, upper class. Oh, I see. Oh, la, la. <laughs> <laughs> 
Someone's doing all right for themselves. <laughs> Availability isn't just this, it's doing all right for themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Dear God, Dan, if you're not staying at Travelodge, where are you staying? <laughs> I, I refuse to answer this question. <laughs> I have quite a big car. So you hangs out at the kind of bars that you'd find in those not-to-be-named places. It, it, the, like the uh, the bar that adjoins a conference centre. You know, so it's it's got uh, a lot of tables and chairs that are supposedly quite trendy, or they might have been like five to ten years ago. Um, it has uh, 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 like split levels. So it'll have you know little steps to fall over once you've had a couple. Um, it's it, it's trying to be uh, like that sort of cabaret style bar, but in a corporate convention centre. You know, without. I'm getting a very Milton Keynes vibe oh. from Preston Gubbles oh, yeah. at the moment. Yeah, I mean he thinks it's quite classy, but he, he he got bitten by a kung fu rat when he was an egg, so he doesn't really. I don't really think he's best placed to uh, talk about classy. What's his level of class? I mean, it's, you know... Oh, his le- his level of class is, um, uh, you know, a, a coffee with um, one of those flavoured syrups in. A bag of minstrels in a bowl. A bowl? A bag of minstrels in a bowl? What did he do with the bag? Put it straight in the recycling, because he's, um, uh, he's seen the sewers, he understands. I get it. So... Let's step into Preston's world a second and make things hard for him. Now, Algernon has spotted Preston Gubbles uh, responsibly disposing of a minstrel's bag. <laughs> Do you know that is, the, that is the, the very first time in the history of humanity that that combination of words has been strung together in that way? <laughs> yes, so... Has spotted Preston Gubbles disposing of his minstrel bag responsibly, and he sees his chance. He grabs the minstrel's bag and slips it over <gasps> Preston Gubbles' head. Is he still inside the pie? He's still inside the pie. <laughs> How he gets along, we'll need Just to. Just sort of like out. hopping, I guess, like you would if you're in a sleeping bag. He's got to build up some serious muscles to move around with, with hopping in that manner, especially as an eel. I guess he's got that core strength, doesn't he? How, ideally. How does Preston Gubbles defend himself against such an attack by a dastardly character such as Algernon? Ooh. See, I think as a reptile, um, I think he's a reptile, not a fish. I don't know. He's, with with his, his arms and legs, he looks more reptilian. So I think in order to try and escape, he, he does the thing that those, those lizards do where the tail comes off. But I think his arms and legs just sort of pop off. And he just he sort of reverts to eel status and uh, sort of just thrashes about. You're making me fall in love with Preston Gubbles every step we take, Dan. One person who doesn't love Preston Gubbles is Algernon. But to find out the extent of this, we'll have to ask Suitcase. Suitcase? I fed you last Thursday week. Besides, the neighbour's dog won't give birth until the next full moon. Can we get on with it? Four. So, yes, Preston Gubbles has managed to escape in his slithery manner. Good. But, unfortunately, he still has the minstrel's bag attached to him in some fashion on his head. So, 
that's a permanent disability as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> like, is it all the way over? Is it is it suffocatingly bad? Is it? it it's perhaps ta- he can tailor it to make it more livable on his head. I think he's it's just sort of like of poked it all the way through, and he's got it like a yeah. little rough. Oh, that's classy. You see, Preston and his classy ways. Oh, absolutely. Excellent. So it's unfortunately something of a disability, but at least he's escaped. The, well, uh, the he point. now he now lo- no longer can move with stealth. That's true. Because <laughs> it's going to sound like this every time he moves. That just adds character, Dan. Uh, available for Foley work. Let's see. Uh, 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 so I think the the pie remains, but it's got like uh, arms sort of hanging out of it. Obviously, he's um, uh, he's he's lost his arms. It was a terrible to do. Uh, he kind of chose it for himself though, so I can't really have a great deal of pity for him because he wanted this. Of course. <laughs> And I like that you've described it as a to-do. Like, this this disability is something of a pickle. <laughs> well, we know where this is heading, don't we? Dan, I never know where anything is heading. We're not complete savages here at the Society for Ungentlemanly Conduct, so we'll pause the misery momentarily for a tea break. What's your tea of choice, Dan? Uh, coffee. Awkward. We may have to call a halt for this entire podcast. Tea's kind of integral to the universe. I um, I I just don't don't particularly like it. To be honest, I just really like coffee. Uh, I think what I have is what you might call a caffeine addiction, and uh, uh, I, I don't care how I get that fix. Uh, just need that sweet fix. I I, I never uh, uh, you know I always used to just drink instant coffee, and I've only very recently. Uh, discovered the uh, the absolute joy of filter coffee uh, in a little cafetiere on the hob, and uh, yeah, so it's it's very nice, and I, I like it uh, very strong. Uh, I like it um, uh, bitter and black, just uh, just like my heart. Uh, but I, I don't don't drink it after three in the afternoon, otherwise I don't sleep. You don't get your nap, otherwise. I don't get my, don't get my kip in. That's very sensible. Fine, coffee it is. This once. So. Tell me what's exciting you about your work lately. What's exciting me about my work? Oh, so uh, I'm doing a uh, another book with David Gaffney, uh, which is o- always very exciting because uh, uh, I love the way that David writes. Uh, the this book we've we've written together, so we we, we started with uh, a premise each, basically. Uh, so the the first book we did together was called The Three Rooms in Valerie's Head, which was out um, uh, about this time last year, uh, and. It was oh, sorry. I've just drawn uh, Preston looking very, very sad. Um, oh, he looks just desolate. He's he's ever ever so sad. What have we done to him? Dare I say it? He has a slight look of emo Phillips about him. <laughs> oh, good. I think he's got the eyes, isn't he? What was I saying? Oh, yeah. So we uh, the first book we did, we um, we adapted. Uh, I think it was originally it was like twenty something uh, of David's stories. Um, he writes uh, microfiction and novels and things like that. So he'd done two books of stories that were exactly 150 words in length. Um, and so we took uh, a bunch of those stories and then we 
sort of whisked it into uh, a single narrative. And that worked for us. We, we liked having this sort of jigsaw puzzle that we could then try and piece together and then work out. And then how do we get this connective tissue that brings these things together? And it was, you know, it was a really good creative process and it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, so when we came to write the new one, we thought, well, we'll, we'll let the same thing happen. Uh, so David had a story um, in mind about uh, you know someone who worked for a social media network uh, who was trying to get revenge on you know people who had wronged him in the past, and I had a story about a guy who wanted to build a boat um, who ultimately ended up drowning, um, and so it's just cheery, cheery little tome it's going to be, <laughs> but it's it's very funny, um, and um, so we've uh, you know been working on it for for quite a while now. Uh, getting the the full structure of the story uh, into uh, into place, and uh, uh, we're very happy with how it's turning out. So that that's been that's been a joy. Uh, I, I spent was it last week, the week before last, uh, in the Netherlands with my students, or some of my students, uh, and they were drawing comics on a hundred year old boat, which was very cool. Uh, and uh, so I started drawing a comic all about them drawing a comic and being in the the Dutch town of Leiden which was uh, a lot of fun, um, just having the chance to sort of tool around in the sunshine, riding a little Dutch bike around a little Dutch town and, uh, and drawing comics all day every day. It was good. And uh, so I saw from the social media posts you wore a quite spiffing hat. I have the hat. Uh, yes, I'm now wearing it. Uh, it's a captain's hat. And do, you, do you wear that in class from now on? Is that a thing? I think it's just going to be the, uh, the, the general affectation. That I that I have now. Um, it's going to be there goes Captain Dan, and I'll obviously I'll get a bigger beard and, I'll and a pipe. Out, That's ad- admirable, 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 Admiral Dan. There we go, the admirable Admiral Dan. <laughs> I think you've got to say Admiral, admirable, 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 admiral Dan, Mister Berry to you. During the course of my not at all creepy stalkerish activities. I noticed you've been doing a lot of life drawing lately. Have you always made that part of your practice to kind of keep your chops up? Uh, I never did life drawing until about maybe five years ago or thereabouts. Um, So uh, in the town where I live, in the town of Shrewsbury, in uh, Shropshire, in the Midlands, in England, in the UK, in Europe. The planet Earth, um, the Milky Way. (laughs) The Milky Way. We've got quite a few comic artists. Uh, so notably, we've got um, uh, Charlie Adlard, who draws The Walking Dead. Uh, we've got Christian Ward. Uh, we've got Robbie Morrison, who you know, written for Charlie's, written for 2000 AD, and uh, all sorts. Uh, we've got John Wagner, who lives down the road as well. So th- there's quite a, a neat little community of comic artists. And um, uh, you know, I'd, I'd been hanging out with Charlie for a while, and he said, you know, sort of sheepishly, one day, do you want to? Uh, do you want to- Going to life drawing, but you know, I would if you will, sort of thing. Uh, and so we've been going to life drawing for um, well, quite a few years now. Um, every Tuesday, um, it, it's good. Um, it's uh, I remember again when I was a teenager and I had the opportunity to go to life drawing. I didn't go because I already knew everything. That was the benefit of being a teenager. Um, so, kind of, it was an idiot really. Uh, I passed out on a, a really good opportunity. Uh, uh, and I really think that the life drawings are an excellent way to uh, hone your observational ability, uh, but also to, you know, it's not a structured class where they say, right, now you must sort of measure with your thumb and, you know, prance around in your smock or whatever. It's sort of just sit around and, like, right, you've got 20 minutes, do what you like. 
and so it, it's nice to be able to set yourself mad little challenges um so it, it, in terms of sort of developing confidence because i think you can always have more confidence and more understanding of what you do i'll sort of self-sabotage like in the first line so I'm like okay the arm is coming down like that and so i'll draw it as a big curve instead and then i'll draw the foot really too big at the bottom and then like okay fix that then if you're so smart you're like okay i'll try you know and so it, it, it's setting like mad little sudokus for yourself to try and fill out which I, I really enjoy um you know if i get new tools or new pens or you know if i'm trying something out on the the ipad uh you know it's it's a great place to sort of prototype things really really quickly but also be able to see immediately like have you got it right you've got something to test it against I mean, speaking of tools, you you also make your own tools as well. Make your own own, own ink pens, and you're not afraid to self mutilate in the process of, of doing that. Though. <laughs> yeah, I think that's um, yeah, that's that's going to be on my tombstone. <laughs> the guy poisoned himself, and yeah, so uh, yeah, no idea. I've been making um, uh, a uh, unique um, drawing tool. Uh, I call it a blade pen for. Uh, uh, I think four years now. I think maybe five, maybe longer. I think it's on version, oof, thirty something at this point. Um, so it started as a life as a piece of wood with some sort of scrap metal sort of stuck to the end that I'd shaped with a pair of uh, pliers, uh, and now it's got three D printed components. It's my workshop here behind me. Uh, there's sort of three D printers and. Um, uh, uh, pillar drills and uh, sanding belts, uh, giant vices. Oh, what else have I got? Uh, rotary grinders and uh, and all sorts. So it's um, it's quite a sort of involved process now. Um, the uh, with oh, all sorts of parts. So yes, it's been uh, a lot of fun to try and figure it out, but it's also been uh, really really dangerous. So I've given myself um, metal poisoning uh, more than once. Uh, because uh, the nibs are made from brass, uh, and uh, you can, uh, if you inhale it, I mean, it's uh, it's copper and zinc there, uh, and zinc is is toxic. You shouldn't it makes up quite in. sick. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. My um, my temperature uh, sort of dropped to like thirty two or something like that, and I was like oh, saying to my wife, Kathy, I feel awful, and she's like, Do you feel really clammy, and I'm like, I don't feel right, Kathy. So I sent myself to bed and like Googled what is what is brass? Is is brass okay to breathe? Like absolutely not. No, you don't breathe that in. Also try not to get too much of it on your skin because it's uh, it's poison uh, in its powdered forms. So yeah, I've poisoned myself maybe three, maybe four, maybe five times. Uh, That's a reasonable amount. It's a reasonable amount. I mean once for what, four or five years. It's like once a year, really. Was the the, the designing your own pen, was that a sort of a almost like a natural logical conclusion to to your craft is in okay i've i've done what i can with available tools i need to make my own yes i think so uh, you know i think maybe i'm hesitating because you used the word conclusion and i don't feel like it's ever ever going to finish um but i i've been a, a sort of a enthusiast um for a long time you know from that sort of very early like how do you get that chris ware line how do you get that jack kirby line um because you know, I was looking for that magic pen, magic pencil, you know, the thing that could draw staircases and you know horses and motorbikes and all those things. Um, so I've spent an ungodly amount of money on pens um, over the last sort of, well, God knows how many years, trying to find something that 
acted like I wanted it to. So th- there's a number of um, uh, pens that I really, really like. Uh, there's a, a sort of vintage uh, fountain pen from the sort of 1940s. There's, you know, the Swan, maybe Todd's, the uh, Waterman's, uh, and uh, 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 Conway Stewart's particularly have really, really nice. Uh, the Stilamine 303 is very nice as well. Uh, really, really nice flexible nibs with a huge chunk of iridium on the end, so you can get this beautiful flexible line. Um, but they're, they're kind of uh, awkward to maintain, uh, and you've got to get used to them as well. And I, I feel like I'm really used to them. Uh, and I, I was very interested in how I got this this organic line that had a lot of variability and flexibility without the accidental, oh crap, I've just broken a hundred pound pen, like by pressing too hard, um, which is you know that yeah hurts. It really hurts. Um, so the pen kind of grew out of that, you know, trying to figure out what can I do with the tools. I've always been kind of a, a handsy, hands-on, um, you know, make it uh, kind of guy. So, you know, the, the the building I'm in at the moment, I built with my bare hands. Uh, very proud of that. Um, yeah, on a scale of commitment, building your own studio from the ground up is kind of high. Yeah, yeah, it was good. I mean, the sort of month two, the roof blew off and I had to uh, sort of <laughs> get a new one. Uh, that was an, that was a, a very um, uh, it was a freak storm. It was horrible. Um, That's it, Dan. Blame the storm. It was the storm. My tools are perfect. Um, so you know, th- th- it's not all, all you know, uh, sunflower and lollipops, but it's uh, it, it's it's really nice. So th- this idea of you know, can I make it? Can I do this thing myself? Um, I think it's the the sort of willful willful ignorance that I have when I'm drawing as well. Like I don't care if it's going to be wrong. I'm going to finish it anyway. You know that that sort of willful ignorance and sort of you can sort of misread it as confidence, but I think of it as willful ignorance of the consequences. And um, it's stubbornness. That's what I mean. It's complete, yes, yeah, bull headed stubbornness. Yeah, that's basically what what we're talking about now. Um, so that's uh, basically what I what I do is um, if, if I get into a new project. Um, you know, if I decide that I can't do it, then obviously I'm not going to be able to do it. But if I think, no, I'm going to dig foundations and I'm going to, you know, make a log cabin, by God, I'm going to do that. So I can be quite bullheaded and stubborn about those things. Right. Back to this nasty business then. One of the things I like to talk about is struggle. It's just fun to watch others suffer. Let's introduce some struggle into Preston Gubbles' life. Now, he's cowered and spent some time now behind a bar in uh, a hitherto unnamed low-budget hotel (laughs) attached to a car. Probably in uh, London's Docklands, I should imagine. So uh, he's at the formerly XL. (laughs) That's the one. He's at London Book Fair. There he is. He spent some years now cowering behind the bar um, with his minstrel's packet as a Jacobean rough of sorts, looking relatively miserable. I think that's a very generous uh, way of saying he looks terrible. He does. He looks really awful. What, what is it about Preston's life that he wants? What's, what's, what's his goal? What's, what's he really striving towards? <laughs> What does he want? He wants. Um, oh, he, he want. Let, let, let's go back to that hierarchy of needs. You know, I mean, he's got most things. He's got most things sewn up, but he doesn't have any sort of spiritual fulfillment. 
if if I if I look at him in his first incarnation, wearing his carnation, and, you know, his pinstripe suit and his his orange tie and everything, I think he looks he looks mean. He looks he looks uh, he looks ready to take on the world, and he looks like he doesn't take no guff from no one. I look at him here, sort of weeping out of a pie, and I think that he can almost see the error of his ways. You know that love will now pass him by because he's he's dallied. He thought he had forever, and he didn't. And now here he is, slithering away, with his arms and legs sticking out of a pie. He's got a minstrel's bag wrapped around his throat, and he's just he's got like hip and shoulder scars. Like who who could love him now? Poor Preston. I thought you. Were, I've turned the tables on you. I've, I've... I was going to create some misery in his life. But you just you 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 were too keen. <laughs> we, we'll, we'll change things up a little bit because, in a not even slightly suspicious turn of events, Algernon would perhaps like Preston to know that he is loved. He drifts into the cheap hotel bar that mirrors Preston's soul and beckons to him, saying, "I thought I hated the very guts of you, fella." But I'm starting to feel something much deeper for you. Something real. Something close to my heart. It sounds like a trap. To be honest with you. How could it possibly be a trap, Dan? I think he's going to love the taste of him or something like that. (laughs) Alas, we must let Suitcase determine how trusting of this change of heart Preston Gubbles will be. Suitcase, if you will. you not number generate a little bit more gently? That'll need stitches. It's an eight. So, Dan, how enthusiastically does this mean Preston reacts to Algernon's advances? That's good for one of our characters, isn't it? Well, I, th- I think, you know, he, he feels like he's, he's, been, he's been locked in a dark room. And it's not necessarily that the, the lights have been turned on and the wallpaper is love hearts. You know, I think that would be the ten. You know, he's just surrounded, surrounded by you know infinite love forever. An eight is the door opens and the, like kissy noises come from the, the light outside, and so he just sort of like I was going to say bounds out the door, but I guess he sort of like slithers with, with real purpose <laughs> towards these sort of smoochy noises. You know, like um, the. The, the smell of the pie in old cartoons that would like sort of like seductively sort of like make hand, hand make non-obscene hand gestures at the uh, the main character like that basically I think that's that sort of level of um, uh, besottedness as Preston gobbles slithers with hope toward Algernon braced to receive the love he craves Algernon cackles and whips a jug of hot liquor from behind his back and hurls the contents at poor gobbles again suitcase provided you with an eight dan what kind of damage have we caused i think uh it went into his eyes because like they're, they're kind of leading the charge there if he's slithering towards his true love he doesn't uh, need him he's a he's a, a aquatic creature it's murky down there i don't well where he's going it's it's very dark <laughs> so i think maybe he's 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 blinded uh maybe he has uh, facial scalding indeed I think the rest of his body might have been uh, protected by the uh, minstrel's bag. What turned out to be perhaps uh, an, an impediment has, has turned out to be his, his saving grace. Who, who'd have thought minstrels would save the day? Who'd have thought? 
You mentioned earlier that you teach other young blackguards in the art of illustration. How has your time teaching actually affected the work you produce? I think what it has done is... um, Maybe this is going to sound mean, um, but it's a really, really good way of being able to uh, see in the flaws of others what you don't see in your own work. So when someone gets something wrong and it's absolutely blindingly obvious to you, you know, as a as a really good example, I had a, a student oh, a few years ago now who drew a comic uh, about, uh, I think it was his brother, uh, who would throw a ball. And in every panel, the ball would be in air. And I was reading it and thinking, so there's a magician who's levitating this ball around. And this guy's like, no, 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 he's throwing the ball up and down. I'm like, but you never see the up, or you, you only ever see the up, but you don't see the down, you know, you don't see any of that thing. So in every panel. And so it, that was the, well, an example of that sort of, oh, right, moment where you realise that you're not doing comics for yourself, you're doing them for someone else, and that they've got to be legible and readable and uh, understandable. You know, you, you can't rely on people understanding what it is that you know about the story. You, you've got to feed them all of the context, otherwise they'll take their own to it. And so if the only context you have of someone you know, with a ball sort of hovering above a hand is like the idea of levitation, like that you're going to feed that context into it and completely misunderstand the story. And so I have this very sort of purpose-driven approach to comics, like what's the purpose of this panel, what's the purpose of this particular page, what's the purpose of this dialogue what's the purpose of the gesture or the you know the roll of the eyes or you know the, the hunch of the shoulders and I, I, this is goes back to what i was saying about it being a form of sort of mind control in that each of those things is going to have an effect on the way that someone understands the context of the story and it, it, you have to feed them all of the context that they need to know otherwise they bring their own to it and that's when you start to get into this this odd ambiguity in that people can experience your version of mind control in different ways in which case it's not mind control you know you, you've you've to my mind it's not succeeded in its primary purpose which was to tell a story in the way that i wanted it to be told so you know working with students has been really really good in helping me figure that out for myself you know, because it's really difficult sometimes to see your own particular flaws. But then, you know, when you see them reflected back at you and you, you go home after a long day and you go back to drawing your character who's throwing this ball in the air and you're like, oh, no, he's got to come down again. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I can't be a hypocrite. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We've talked about Preston Gubbles' struggle. One of my favourite pieces of your own work is Carry Me, which is a really great example of the challenge of drawing comics without dialogue. How do you go about setting new challenges for yourself to keep things interesting? Well, I think the, you know, with Carry Me, the the challenge with that one, I mean, it, it came from um, kind of a couple of experiences. My daughter had just been born, and uh, she's fine, by the way. She's fine. That's, she's fine. She's all right. She's, she's fine, really, everyone. She's okay. <laughs> not been chased off by a big dog or anything. Off. No, not not really, really old. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. But, uh, you know, we were walking across some uh, fields from, you know, her grandparents' house uh, to, you know, our house. So it was, a, you know, maybe a mile walk. It was a lovely warm day. And so she was, I don't know, one, maybe one and a half, if. And so I was having to carry her. And I remember hearing this dog somewhere off in the background, and I was like, "Oh, I hope this dog doesn't come and attack us." Like you know that, like I said, that inner monologue, that you know, dumb voice that you have, and then that sort of just it sort of spiraled into like, "Oh, wouldn't it be awful, you know, if we did get attacked?" Like, and then you're like, "Well, time's attacking us all, really, isn't it?" And you know, when when you have kids, you have this um, sort of quite 
profound period of uh, morbidity, I think, where you, you consider your, your own death and your own place in the world and all the rest of it. Uh, so it was, I don't say it's weighing heavily on my mind, but it was something that was certainly at the forefront. And uh, so when I, I started drawing that comic, it was one of the first comics I'd drawn where I just drew it and didn't plan it. You know, there was no roughs underneath. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, yeah. Because, you know, my, my, my feeling on it was that you don't get any practice. You know, if this is a story about life and death, you don't get practices. So, you know, right, going in, going in straight straight in with ink, you know, and uh, painting it, and that's what it will be. So if it's if it's correct, it's correct, and if it's wrong, it's wrong. And, you know, I I, I accept that. And that was... Yeah, that was difficult to, to let it go. There's only one bit that I had to redraw because my son got a page and he coloured it in. And he's, he's, he's a year older than uh, uh, <laughs> than his sister. And so, you know, very very kindly and politely um, told him not to not to draw on Daddy's special comics. Um, so <laughs> uh, he uh, that was about it, really. So that was a challenge. And, you know, I've done uh, a number of 24-hour comics. Um, well, I've done quite a few 24-hour comics now. Um, and they, they, they've been a lot of fun. Uh, I've, I've really enjoyed drawing 24-hour comics. I remember the first one was very, very difficult, and my hand swelled up, and um, I felt, you know, awful uh, for a long time afterwards, and then the second one wasn't as bad, and then the third one was okay, and, you know, you sort of make it stressful for yourself in, you know, mad new ways, I suppose. So, you know, 24-hour comics haven't really been difficult. They're, they're, they're time-consuming, and they're are challenging but it's it's not a challenge that's impossible so now i've done a bunch it's it's kind of easy i like 24 hour, uh, uh, hourly comics day because you don't get excused from real life so you still got to do comics and have a life you know my rule for hourly comics day is you're not allowed to draw comics about drawing comics it becomes pretty meta after all <laughs> it really starts to you know gaze up its own bum after a certain point and uh you know, so that, that's my rule for for hourly comics. And I think, in, in terms of the the challenge, it's it's trying to, you know, push myself out of my comfort zone. So whether it's you know, with the, one of the twenty four hour comics was a, a ghost story called Nicholas and Edith, that had sort of a time travel element to it. And you know, again, it was one of those stories where we're all doomed. Um, you know, there, there's uh, you know, obviously there's wordless comics. There's um, uh, did a book called Bear Canyon where I had I went in with the very very loosest idea of the story, and you know that again was a twenty four hour comic. And I'm like, okay, so I have the the very barest loosest inkling of what this story might be about, and I'm gonna just start page one, and hopefully by the time I get to the end, it's made sense and it's it, it's readable. You know, I, I wouldn't say it's, it's the best thing I've ever done, but it was certainly a challenge, and it was it was a lot of fun to draw. Okay, it's that time. There's no avoiding it. The unfortunate Preston Gubbles has to meet his horrific demise. He's looking very, very forlorn at the moment. I, I think from the looks of him, he's almost there. <laughs> I think he might be. He's, he's, he's not necessarily at Death's door, but he's in Death's neighbourhood for sure. Down Death's cul-de-sac. Death adjacent. <laughs> he, he's ringing on the doorbell. Perhaps Death is coming along. He's lost his suit. He's lost his arms and his legs. He's lost his his, his vision and his ability to be stealthy. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, suitcase, fire away. I mean, what other mockery can we inflict on this poor thing that God hates so much, apparently? Suitcase, one last time, please. 
How many times don't number generate directly into my eye? Is is that? Yeah, it's a seven. Okay, so things are looking up from where they were. It's it's not going to be the most most painful death. Algernon rings on uh, Preston's doorbell, living as he does adjacent to death, and Preston doesn't answer because, let's face it, how the hell is he going to do that? He might be able to sort of, like, hoist himself up and sort of mutter through the letterbox. Maybe. Oh, no, that's that's a fantastic... You, you, I think you're making it worse for him, but what what is uh, Preston going to mutter through the letterbox, then? Oh, um... Uh, I, th- I thought you loved me. I thought you loved me. He's just going to keep repeating it, just quieter and quieter. <sighs> just through big, snotty tears. This is getting quite dark, and I like it. Okay. Uh, Algernon whispers, not not nicely, kind of creepily, through the uh, through the crack through the crack in the door, that that this is an act of love. The ultimate act of love is releasing <laughs> oh, you, okay, from your torment. <laughs> I think that that actually makes a bit too much sense to uh, to Preston. I think that you know that this sort of act of devotion is uh, is, is touching for him. I think he he feels a sense of uh, grace and fulfilment. Does does that equate to a seven? Is I guess what I'm asking. No, I, I'll tell you what equates to a seven is the fact that Algernon has fitted out Preston's house secretly with various fires for baking into a pie. Okay. So every hole in Preston's house, well, let's say seven out of ten holes in Preston's house. So that's the fireplace. Fireplace uh, under the stairs. Chimney. Chimney. The uh, the pl- some of the plug holes. Uh, the um, uh, the, the, the 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 extractor fan. The extractor fan. The oven hood. Always thinking practically. We're not even looking at the oven. <laughs> like everything attached to an oven <laughs> is an oven. He turned all all four burners on. <laughs> Uh, and hell, let's say the refrigerator. All of these things are secretly, secretly oven burners, and uh, Algernon cranks the dial up to seven. Not a ten, a seven. It's going to be slow, but it's not going to be too slow. So it's going to take 40 minutes today. It's going to, 40 minutes on high. <laughs> okay. And, and while he turns on the burners, he's feeding liquor through the, through the letterbox. As he would. And poor... Poor Preston is gurgling. What would you say, Dan, is Preston's final words, his final reaction as he's slowly baked into a giant house-sized pie? I, I never deserved anything anything more than this. <laughs> I think he's he's kind of down on himself, I think. As you would be, really, at that stage, being baked into a pie. And uh, what kind of aroma do you think would float up from that particular house? Oh, gravy. Gravy. <laughs> Onions. Uh, just delicious, delicious seafood. As the heat builds inside, Algernon is heaping shovels full of mashed potato outside the house. This, coupled with the unmistakable aroma of pastry, liquor and delicious, delicious eel seeping from the windows, is drawing the neighbours from all around. They have forks at the ready... And surely, as Preston gobbles bakes to his doom, writhing in agony, 
he can take some comfort in the knowledge that he will soon be part of the most delicious street feast to grace these lands for quite some time. Probably not. Who cares? He was a horrendous eyesore. Dan, you've been a more enthusiastic misery maker than your mask of being a pleasant human being could have suggested. Bravo! You've more than earned the opportunity to shell your wares. Tell us, how can we throw support and hard cash at you? Oh, okay. Uh, I I would like uh, for people to buy my books. Sorry, I I was thinking about the colour of teeth then. Yeah, buy my books. Uh, I have a book with David Gaffney called Three Rooms in Valerie's Head. Um, I'm very proud of that book. I think it's dead good. Uh, I think you'll like it. It's funny and dark and silly and creepy and uh, uh, moving. And uh, I think it's it, it's it's right up everyone's street. So that's uh, that's a, a, a big a big thing I want you to do. Um, uh, I have other books. Uh, I have a, a book that I edited called Twenty Four by Seven, um, which was a twenty-four hour comic. Uh, it was nominated for an Eisner Award a couple of years ago, which was. Very nice. Uh, we didn't win, uh, so that's uh, an Eisner Award. Nice what we just what we to lost. Be <laughs> it's nice just to be nominated. I'll be honest; it would have been nicer to win. Um, and um, so you know, there, there's that. Uh, I have a web shop, I think, where uh, occasionally you can buy my pens. They're not on sale at the moment uh, because whenever I put them on sale, that is uh, weeks and weeks and weeks of me being poisoned and bludgeoned and sliced and diced. Uh, and then fulfilling orders with, uh, you know, <laughs> a concussion. And, uh, and people want a taste of that danger. And they really want a taste of that danger. So uh, keep an eye out on my Instagram, which is at Things by Dan, and my Twitter at Things by Dan, because uh, I will I will let you know if I'm going to make some more pens. Um, I'm likely to have another book out before long, uh, which I hope to have ready for. The, uh, the 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 show in Dublin in April where I'm going to be a guest there. The, that's right, April 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 the sixth in the uh, uh, Bovril factory, the custard factory, the, the jelly bean factory, the chocolate factory. I think no, I chocolate that, factory. I, I, it might be the chocolate factory. I'm gonna. It's something, something factory. <laughs> it's, it's a factory. Um, I know that the custard factory is in Birmingham, and, it, and that's maybe where I'm getting a, getting a, a little muddled up. <laughs> I mean, we've, got, we've got dessert covered. Um, so um, uh, the, look out for me there. Um, I, uh, if you ask very nicely and give me some money, I might draw you as if you were a bird. Um, my, my, my son will be coming along as well, and I'm, I'm sure he would love to draw your cat. He's seven years old. Cats, but cats are more difficult than birds, Dan. I think perhaps he's, he's a much better artist than more. I am. <laughs> yeah, he'll charge more, uh, and I will take a very modest cut to cover his plane fare. Congratulations, Dan Berry. You are now a permanent member of the Society for Ungentlemanly Conduct, whether you like it or not. Thank you very much. Now, get out. Assuming Dan Berry survives the pack of rabid squirrels that I may or may not have bred to enjoy the specific taste of his flesh, you should go and check out his website, www.thingsbydan.co.uk, and his podcast, Make It Then Tell Everybody. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Character Assassination, produced by me, Nereus, and brought to you by Studio Squid Inc. You can find us on Instagram at Studio Squidink and at our website www.studiosquidink.com. Come visit us again for art, 
tea and a jolly spot of murder on another barely competent episode of Character Assassination. 